Well, this morning we are going to look at one of the most famous stories in the New Testament, the feeding of the 5,000. It is recorded in all four Gospels, with the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all being virtually identical with only minor variations in detail. It's really a high point in Jesus' ministry, whereby His glory is displayed before a very large crowd of thousands of people. And it is captured in Scripture for the benefit of billions of readers throughout the course of history. No matter how many times you read it, it does not cease to amaze. And so that's where we're going to turn together right now is Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Now if you remember a few weeks ago, the last time we were here, we recalled how the first 12 verses of Matthew 14 really bring us into a flashback scene of the death of John the Baptist. Uh, News has reached the ears of Jesus that Herod is looking for him, and that occasions Matthew to jump back and tell the story of how John met his end. And Matthew is including this story because things are going to move ahead with the news of Herod going after Jesus. And Jesus has no desire to subject himself to Herod at that time. He doesn't want to have to deal with any of Herod's whimsical insanity, and so in response to hearing that Herod is inquiring in verse 13, he makes a decision to withdraw from there. And it says in the text that in verse 13, he withdrew from the place he was at from there, and he went in a boat uh, to a secluded place by himself. Now he gets alone for the purpose of, no doubt, thinking and praying. And Jesus would frequently do this, but of course it is difficult and rarely afforded a moment's peace. There's always people chasing after Jesus. Well, why? Why did so many people go after Jesus all the time? Well, some believed that he was the Messiah. He was the Savior. And so they were there for the right reason, for spiritual reasons. But the vast majority of people only came to Jesus because of what he could do for them. The end of verse 13 tells us that when the people heard that he had withdrawn, they followed him on foot from the cities. Chasing him down. They're pressing in. They're always searching for him, always needing him, but not always knowing why. And on this day, however, Jesus comes down and he comes back and he does something that none of them are ever going to forget. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. When he went ashore, He saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, or toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, Twelve baskets, excuse me, twelve full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Now, 
Based on the events of the surrounding narrative, scholars have been able to identify that the feeding of the 5,000 takes place about a year before the crucifixion. So in the course of Matthew's Gospel, we're, we're sandwiching in, really, or, or, or bringing all together in three, three years' worth of ministry into these 28 chapters. And as you continue to read in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the events begin to pick up sequence. And so from this point on, we've only got about a year left of Jesus' ministry, and it begins to pick up steam, as we're going to see. But we're, right now, we're about a year out, and so we see here that this, this event takes place in front of a large crowd. A large crowd has been following him. And we know that from verse 21 that the crowd consisted of more than 5,000 men. And it says, not including women and children. But when Jesus saw all of these people coming to him, the Bible says that he felt something. He felt compassion for them. Compassion. The Greek word that is used here in the original text is Splank nidzomai, which literally could be translated from the guts, from the bowels. It's a deep emotive response of care and tenderness. When you see somebody hurting or in need and everything in you just wants to reach out from inside of you to bring them in and to help them. That's compassion in terms of how the Bible describes it. But this is the heart of Christ. And while we know that there are times where Jesus can, ge- can get angry and moved with rage and, and frustration over sin and injustice, we know that in places like this, he's also moved with compassion for those who are lost and hurting. We see a similar verse in Matthew 9.36 where Jesus sees a large group of people coming to him who are hurting and in pain. And the text says he was moved with compassion because the people were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And so he sees them, and that becomes the motivation, his compassion, his loving kindness, his tenderness for them. And so Jesus sees all the people, and they're coming to him in Matthew 14, and how does he respond? Look at verse 14. It says, And he healed their sick. The idea being that he no doubt healed all of the people who were coming to him that were sick. And most likely he would have spent all day doing this. For as many people were coming to him, he was healing them and blessing them and praying for them and healing them and healing and healing and healing and giving of himself in compassion to all the people to the point where at verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples, they come to him and they say, Lord... This place is desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now the word for evening here refers to at least one of two periods of time. Scholars have kind of talked about what the, the Hebraism here for evening was. It was either the early part of the evening, which could be about 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock or so, or it could also be a term to refer to after 6 p.m. when it's dark. Many scholars believe that it's the period before, somewhere between 3 and 6 p.m. It's not so dark that they can't do anything yet, but it's late enough where you need to start making some plans. If you've walked from another village to get here, you've got to start thinking about how you're going to get back and what you're going to do for, for food and for lodging for the night. And so it's a later half of the day. Uh, darkness is approaching. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record uh, the disciples' concern for the crowd. Now keep in mind, they're not in a, in a desert per se, 
But they are in a desolate place, meaning there's no resources to feed all these thousands of people. And to the disciples' credit, we want to give them credit here, they are thinking about how to take care of the crowd so they don't all starve. That was always Jesus' heart. He wants to make sure that these people don't faint along the way. He doesn't want them to send them away needing anything. And so the disciples know this, and they're, they're, they're conscientious of this. We have to do something that these people don't just stay here until they all starve or until they can't find a way back home. And so they conclude that lacking abundant resources, the best solution, the best solution is for Jesus to send the crowd away so that they can go into all the surrounding villages and buy food for themselves. That makes the most sense. Thousands and thousands of people here, let's tell them to to go back and they can take care of dinner except that Jesus doesn't like that solution. He gives them another one. Look at verse 16. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. In the, in the original Greek, the emphasis is on you. You give them something to eat. You feed them. Now, essentially what he's saying is, listen friends, you're not going to simply send them away and consign them to wandering even more. Remember, we, we saw earlier that he sees people like sheep without a shepherd. That was, that's a reoccurring theme all throughout. And it happens later on when he feeds the 4,000. Same kind of a thing. You're not going to consign them to just keep on wandering. They've come here to the shepherd. We're, we have to take care of them. And you're with me, so we're going to take care of them. But he says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, in Matthew's record... Verse 17 is the very next moment. And when you look at your text, the next thing we see is verse 17 and the sentiment that's there. But in years later, years later, the Apostle John, when he writes his gospel, probably about 30 or 40 years after this gospel's written, he captures more of the conversation going on. And so turn over to John chapter 6 with me. Now, years ago, if you were here Six, seven, eight years ago, we actually went through the entire Gospel of John, and so we've been in this territory before. But it's always good to go back. I love visiting my old friend John and hearing what he has to say about salvation history. Now, John 6 is oftentimes referred to as the bread chapter because it begins with the feeding of the 5,000, and it includes also Jesus' difficult teaching about the the nature of eating and drinking, and most specifically, that he says that he is the ultimate bread of life, and he tells the crowds that because he's the bread, they are to eat his flesh. Now, the people, when they hear this, their stomachs are absolutely turned. Why in the world would you ever say that? Are you a cannibal? Is that what's wrong with you? He's certainly speaking metaphorically. We know this, but the crowds, that was too much for them. And they rejected his teaching, and many of the disciples began to walk away and stop following Jesus after that. But that's the context here, is Jesus is giving some very intense teaching and very uh, direct didactic teaching about the nature of communion with God. Now certainly, Jesus doesn't want us to eat his body, but understand what he's saying here. It's intimacy. So that's the context here. But John begins the entire discourse by talking about this same event of Jesus feeding the 5,000. John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. We just read about that a second ago. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, 
and he, and he sat down with the disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So I want you to note here, immediately in verse 5, here's the exchange. Everything up to this point is almost identical. Here's the exchange, verse 5. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we going, or where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now certainly John is aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what they've already written, and he does not see the need to include the disciples' comment about sending the crowd away. We already know that they want to send the crowd away. That's a given, okay? But John 6.5 presupposes that Jesus has already told the disciples that they're going to feed the crowd. That's your responsibility to feed the crowd. And my guess is that Jesus' words that he's telling them to feed the crowd, that's really, uh, the, the next statement is coming on the heels of the panic that ensues. He tells them, you're going to feed the crowd. What are they going to say? Lord, do you want us to feed all these people? Have you done a head count? Have you seen how many people are here, Lord? And so now they're going to, all right, we've got to spread out and figure out how to do this here. And they're talking amongst themselves. Okay, how, what, what can we come up with here? Uh, why don't we all scatter and see if there's any food in the crowd we can disperse? And uh, Judas, how much money is in the, is in the till here? And, and, and what's, how close is the nearest town? I mean, how long is it going to take to get there to buy food? And this is what they would have been talking about. And in the midst of all this, in verses 5 and 6, Jesus plays into this no doubt conversation about what they're going to do. Look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus sees the crowd. They're already being told that they have to go buy food. He tells Philip, Hey, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Verse 6. This he was saying to test him. To test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. You see what he's doing? I don't want to presuppose and say he's egging him on, but he's definitely sort of putting some pressure on them. He's feeding into their panic for just a split second. So Philip, uh, where are you planning on buying all the bread? I, I don't know. Where, 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 should you, where should we buy the bread? Well, that's, that's a good question. You see what he's doing? He knows what he's about to do. That's not a question for Jesus. But notice that it is Jesus who is the first one to suggest that Philip ought to be thinking about buying bread. Jesus puts the thought into his mind. You should, where are we going to buy all the bread to get all these people fed here? But verse 6 again tells us that Jesus has no intention of buying bread. That's not something he's even worried about. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip responds with a rough estimate. Now it could be that when Philip talks about 200 denarii, Maybe 200 denarii is all they have. That's possible. Or maybe he simply throws out a random number of what he thinks it's going to cost to accomplish feeding all these people. We don't really know. But considering that one denarius, one denarius is a day's wage, he's essentially telling the Lord even half a year's salary is not going to be sufficient to feed all these people. Are you suggesting that we, we get 200 denarii's worth of bread? That's not even going to be... Not, not, people won't even need a little bit of that. It's not enough. Of course, while they're talking, Andrew has found a little bit of something. Look at verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And then he says this, But what are these for so many people? And so after Andrew steals, I mean borrows the boy's lunch... He brings, no, I'm just kidding. 
No, but he, he finds this food. That's all they have, even though they've walked around the entire crowd, and this is the best to come up with, is five little loaves and two fish. Now we say five loaves. That's not a loaf like you and I are thinking. It's most likely a small little bread cake, like a little biscuit. So this boy has five little biscuits or five little cakes and two little fish, most likely sardines. It's a meager boy's lunch. It's nothing to write home about. Something that a, a mother would have sent her small child away. Here, go, here's your lunch for the day. All right, he puts it in a little sack and goes out and does his thing. It's a small lunch. It's hardly enough to do the job. And so how are the disciples going to feed this huge crowd? Now, I want to pause for a minute and consider the weight of the story. Now, if you're like me, I've heard this story taught many times. I've read this story dozens of times. And I think far too often when we consider the feeding of the 5,000, it's very easy for us to skip over the actual task of how difficult and how amazing this actually was. And so for the next few minutes, if you'll humor me, for the next few minutes, we're going to join the disciples' effort. We're going to jump into the chaos with them. And we're going to try to help them figure out how to feed 5,000 plus people, okay? So we're going to solve the problem, just like what they're doing. We're going to solve their problem using our own means, okay? We're, we're, aren't you used to doing this on your own? I'm used to doing this all the time, trying to just figure out how to solve my own problems, right? That's what they're doing. So humor me. Let's go through this with these guys. Let's help them. The first thing we have to do is do a head count. How many people do we have? Matthew 14, 21 says that there's about 5,000 men, but that does not include the women and children. So how many more do we have? Now, we have to consider that not every single man in the crowd is likely married, but we know that some of the families do have four or six or eight or ten kids. Actually, the Abramsons from Bethsaida, they've got 13, so we've got to keep that in mind, okay? But we've got to kind of average it out. So I think it's safe to say that we have to feed about 20,000 people, give or take, okay? About 20,000 people. And for our purposes, for reference, that's about the, the population of Laconia. So we have to go feed Laconia. That's what we have to do, okay? So we've got to have enough food for 20,000 people. Now, anybody paid for a wedding recently? <laughs> yeah. Uh, to feed 100 people... I don't know, you're talking five, ten thousand plus dollars to feed a hundred people. But we're not going to feed them filet mignon, okay? We're going to give them a very meager, simple meal. That's all that Jesus asked for was a simple meal. That's what we're going to do, just so they don't starve to death. And they can go home and they can fill up when they get home, okay? That's, we're not here to give them a wonderful meal, just enough to help them. So I'm thinking bare bones here. P peanut butter sandwiches. We can't afford jelly. Peanut butter sandwich... <laughs> A bag of chips and a bottle of water. Can, you, can we swing that? All right, let's do that. I did the research. Don't you love how I spend my weeks? Walmart is running a deal, okay? You can buy a flat of 40 bottles of water for $5.36. So at that rate, we're going to need 500 cases of water. That's going to be $2,680, okay? Sandwiches. A loaf of bread, you can get about this 24 slices or so. That's 12 sandwiches per loaf. We need 1,600 loaves of bread. We're not going to go for the good stuff. We're going to go for Wonder Bread. So 272. So that means our bread budget is $4,352. Again, I said we can't afford jelly peanut butter. Okay, peanut butter. It's going to make 15 sandwiches per jar. Target's running a special on 169 for a jar. So we need 1,300 jars of peanut butter to do the job. That means our budget is 2253 for peanut butter. Okay, chips. Frito-Lay classic box. Okay, you can't beat that. 
That's 50 bags of individual personal size chips. There's 50 in a box at 31.28 a wax. So that means that for everybody to have a small bag of chips, that's 400 boxes. That's $12,512. Now, of course, at this point, our brother Andrew comes over and tells the group, don't forget we have five loaves and two fish. All right, Andrew, that's, thank you, brother. That, that doesn't really, it's good to know. That doesn't really help us very much, but thank you, brother. Okay. And so now, the Lord has tasked us with this problem, and we're using our human reasoning to solve this problem, okay? We're in a crisis. We're in a trial. We're trying to figure this out on our own. So we go back to Jesus. The disciples, they go back, and to feed 20,000 people a meager lunch, Lord, here we've done the the math. We need 500 cases of water. We need 1,600 loaves of bread. 1,300 jars of peanut butter and 400 boxes of chips. Lord, we need somehow $21,797. Well, don't forget the five loaves and two fish. Andrew, seriously, (laughs) just enough with the five loaves and two fish. That's not going to help anything. Isn't that what we think about? That, That doesn't do anything for us. It's like having bills to pay and your child says, well, Daddy, I have 50 cents. You're like, thank you so much, sweetheart, but that's not going to help the mortgage. That's what they're thinking. Five loaves and two fish is nothing. That's not going to solve the problem. But it becomes clear, at least at this point in the text, that they don't have enough money to buy all of this for everybody. Because remember, I mean, half a year's salary, even Philip says, that's not enough, Lord. Even if we had 200 denarii, that's not enough. This problem cannot be solved. And so they have to conclude, according to Matthew 14, 17, that when they really look at what they actually have, they would have looked at Andrew at this point and says, well, Lord, we have five loaves and two fish. Thank you, Andrew. So they bring it to Jesus. And what does he say? Verse 18, he says, bring them here to me. Bring them to me. But notice what's going on here. Notice what's going on. The disciples are faced with a trial, an obstacle. And we know that from John 6, 5, that Jesus is the one who put them into this trial in order to test them. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. But he brings them into this ordeal for the purpose of testing their faith and growing them. That's his purpose. And how are they going to respond? Are they going to, as we've been studying for the last two weeks, are they going to consider this all joy? Knowing that the testing of their faith is going to produce endurance? James chapter 1, is that what they're going to do? Or are they going to show themselves to be double-minded and unstable in all their ways? How are they going to respond to this insurmountable obstacle? See, the problem is the disciples are trying to solve the problem in their own strength, with their own wisdom with their own resources. And don't we do that all the time? We, we hit a problem. We, hear some, we see some kind of an issue. And the Lord will put us in these trials all the time. And if you've never experienced a trial that's beyond your comprehension, just wait a little bit. It's going to come to you. But I, I suspect all of us have been through trials that are just beyond our scope. Lord, I've got nothing. I don't know what to do at this point. And that's where they are. There's no way forward. There's no option. Dead end. There's no more money. Money's all gone. There's not enough time. We're out of time. Or maybe the trial is this. 
the doctors are stumped and they, that's all they can do. They can't do anything else. Or maybe it's, well, the politics have gotten so bad or candidate lost or this policy passed or it seems beyond, beyond the pale. Whatever, whatever the problem is, you can insert any insurmountable problem that you would face. That's when the Lord meets us in the trial. Because that's where we find ourselves and the Lord wants to put us in those positions because we're so used to relying on our own strength and our own wisdom. I've got this, Lord. And He has a very careful way of saying, well, no, you don't. No, you don't. This is a no-win situation. And so what do you do in a no-win situation? Do you grumble and complain like the Israelites? Remember, they were asking the Lord for bread, weren't they? To the point where they even said, you know what, we're going to go back to Egypt. We're going to be enslaved, but at least we're going to get three square meals a day. They didn't believe that the Lord could provide for them. We want meat. We want bread. Where's that, where that going to come from? We're in the wilderness. And what happens? He sends the manna, doesn't He? He sends all the birds to them. Are we going to do like the Israels, Israelites did and complain? Are we going to worry and despair? Brothers and sisters, that's a temptation, isn't it? That's a temptation all the time. But how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 19. We're back in Matthew 14 now. Verse 19. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, He blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, He gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Now Luke adds that there's Another step, he actually breaks them up into groups of 50. He splits up the groups and has them sit down that way. It's more of an organizational technique, no doubt. And we know it's springtime because they're sitting on the grass versus later on they're on the hard ground, but they're on the grass. And the crowd, they sit down, and Jesus takes this little meager lunch, these five loaves and these two fish. And he first, he looks up to heaven. Jesus is acknowledging the power and the provision of the Father. He's also modeling for us where our true help comes from. We're reminded of Psalm 121. I will lift my eyes from where does my help come? And the answer is given. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so you encounter a trial. What is to be our response? Lift up your eyes. Colossians 3, doesn't it also say, set your mind and your eyes to heaven where Christ is and not on the ground, not on the earth where the, the base things are. Lift your eyes to heaven. That's where your help comes from. Beloved, we are not sustained by our own efforts and resources. You, believe it or not, you are not the one who provides for your family. Now, is there a mandate to provide, especially if you're the one who is the provider in your home? Of course there is. But in the end, it is not dependent on your ability to care for or provide for or to solve the problem. My favorite words in my own household to my own chagrin are, I just have to figure it out. Let me figure it out. Well, guess what? I'm not very good at figuring things out when it's beyond my grasp. And so the Lord is directing us. He models for us. Look up. Look to the heavens. Look to the Father. That's where your help comes from. And then Matthew records, then he blessed the food. He blessed the food. The root of the Greek word here implies thanksgiving. He gave thanks for the food. 
And Jesus expressed this common blessing. It's most likely that he used a, a very common Jewish blessing. He doesn't, he doesn't say that he actually did, but it's possible. A very common Jewish blessing was this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. I can hear him saying that in front of the crowds. We don't know what the words are, but we do know that he gave thanks to the Lord for what he's about to do. And at that point, and this is what is remarkable about the gospel writers, at this point, with absolutely no fanfare at all, Matthew records that Jesus simply began breaking up the loaves and passing them off to the disciples. And as he's doing that, they're passing them off to the people. And all he does is just keeps on breaking and passing and breaking and passing. And at a certain point, the disciples have to look down and go, what's going on? There's only five in there, and I've handled at least 20. And now it's been 200. And now it's been 500. And where is all this coming from? That's what would have been on their mind. But now we have this endless train of handing food to the disciples. And at this point, at a certain point, they start to become amazed. What is going on? But that's how God works. That's what He does. He provides for His people from resources that we don't comprehend or see. At a certain point, our, our bank is empty. Now, praise the Lord, He does provide and give us money and opportunities and jobs and homes and all kinds of blessings for sure. And we're to steward those resources well. But in the end, it doesn't come from you or from me. Just a quick little story. I was thinking about an illustration. A year before we planted the church, I worked in business. I, was, I worked for a financial company. And for reasons I didn't understand at the time, my business began to dry up. And it started to go really bad to the point where we started to struggle with paying our bills. And there was a month I specifically remember, it's, it's etched into my mind, I did all the bills, all the money, everything. I looked, and we were short $500 for the rent. I could not pay my rent. $500 I was short. We had no more income, no savings. We were absolutely broke. So all we could do was pray, and we did. The next night, we had Bible study at our house, as we always did. We said nothing to anybody about the rent or how much we needed or anything. We just had Bible study. At the end of the study, everybody went home. They all left. And as we're getting ready, we're cleaning up after dinner and everything like that, we walk into our kitchen, there's an envelope sitting on the, the counter. That's weird. We opened it up, and there was a little note that said, Nate and Jess, we just thought that you might need a little extra right now. Signed, so-and-so. And behind the note was $500. It, it paid for our rent. I've never forgotten that. And here's the thing. The Lord has done that kind of thing countless times. And I've talked to many of you. He does this for you all the time. He gives us what we need in the moment that we need it. Now, he didn't give us more than we needed, but we paid our rent that month. And we got to stay in our apartment. And I praise God for that. And that's what he does. God provides for our needs through the generosity of his people. And he does things through means that we aren't even aware of. Total strangers coming out of nowhere to, to do things that you'd never expect. I think about even our building project. We've had total strangers give money to this building project, I have no idea where it's coming from. The very first meeting we had, we looked at the total number, which has since tripled, by the way, but we looked at the first number, and I remember thinking to myself, there's just no way. 
There's not enough people, not enough money. It's not going to happen. Now, that's foolish of me. But I'll tell you, the Lord is providing. And it's not just building projects. It's missions. It's evangelism. It's providing for you, for, for me. It's health. It's relationships. It's everything. God is faithful to provide for His people. And so, in a most miraculous way, Jesus feeds the crowd of hungry people. So much so, look at verses 20 and 21. And they ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. I want you to notice that this is not just a, a meager lunch of just small. This isn't just peanut butter sandwiches here. This isn't nothing. The text says they ate and were, the Greek word is kortadzo, satisfied. The notion, the imagery from that word is going and eating until you just can't eat anymore. Until the, the sight of food on your plate, it just turns you off and you say, yeah, I think I'm done. You push the plate away from yourself. That's the idea. And so they ate until they didn't want to eat anymore. They were done. They were full. And now there's all this leftover food scattered all over the, all over the crowd. And so that's what Jesus does. He feeds them until they're satisfied. Not just barely hanging on. Satisfied. He gives them what they need. And then the disciples, they go and pick up what's left of all the broken pieces. And how much is left? Well, wouldn't you know, 12 full baskets, one for each of them. Just enough for each of them to have a meal. What is this meant to teach us? Now, we know from John 6.14, the crowd responded to this miracle by trying to seize Jesus and make him their king. And so on one level, this miraculous event, it validates the place of Jesus Christ as king. And the crowds, they only saw him as an earthly king who could supply all their needs. But in a very real sense, beloved, this event illustrates the nature of Jesus' future kingdom. That there's going to come a day when Jesus is here again, and all who are under his reign they will have all of their needs met. They will, there's coming a day when there will never, ever be a hungry person on this planet. It's going to happen. And where is it going to come from? From the Lord. God will supply every possible need in a tangible, physical way. Right now, because of sin, because of the fall, there is suffering in the world. But Christ will reconcile, the Bible says, all things to himself. But on a more basic level, on a basic level, we see that only God, only God can truly save and sustain us. It teaches us about God's power and provision. That when you find yourself in this situation like the disciples did, and it isn't just a miracle for the sake of a miracle. The gospel writers could have just said, and he fed 5,000 and moved on. But notice that the gospel writers, they include the internal struggle of the disciples. Why? Because that's what we do. We struggle in these same ways to understand how to trust the Lord and how to grow our faith. And so we have to learn that God is able. He's able to sustain you. He's able to care for you. And what is the heart behind that? Compassion. From the guts, from the bowels. His loving compassion for you. That's what motivates His care. That's what motivates His action. And we've been seeing this all along in our study, haven't we? 
Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us not to be anxious about what? What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Very simple things. Don't worry about your life. After all, the Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, doesn't He? We foolishly act like God doesn't know. Oh Lord, I don't know if you're aware, but I could really use some help right now. Don't you think He knows exactly where you are? In fact, I would even go a step further in terms of providentially, He put you there. He put you, I mean, he put Daniel in the lion's den. He put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the flames so he could walk in there with them. And so, yes, he's aware of where you are. But what's more important than even eating and drinking? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. Matthew 7, 11, The Father knows how to give good things to those who ask him. If you and I are wicked and evil at our core, apart from the grace of Christ, and we would still not feed our kids stones and snakes for breakfast, don't we think that God would do better than that? That's Jesus' argument. In fact, Philippians 4.19 says that God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And what is the greatest need of every person in the whole world? the forgiveness of their sins, the relationship with God. That's where we come down to the gospel, beloved. That becomes the very heart and soul of all of this. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so the news, the the message to all people is that we do have sins. We do have transgressions. We have sinned against a holy God. And God will hold us to account for those sins. And yet, because of His great love for us, He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, walked on this planet, suffered and died on the cross, paid for sins, offered Himself up His body, which we we memorialize on the Lord's table, don't we? His body and his His blood being wine and bread. He gave Himself up on the cross to pay the penalty for sins that all who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ that have their sins forgiven and they would have eternal life. That's the need of every person to have life. And that's what He offers. And so ask of the Lord and He'll provide for you. Seek the Lord and you'll find Him. Knock and He'll be open to you. Beloved, stop trying to muscle your way through your own life. Stop. Cease striving and know that He is God. Will He always bail you out of every single situation to your content? No. He doesn't always give you what you want in the moment. But He always, beloved, He always sustains His people. He sustains them up until the end of their life when they go to meet Him. God will uphold you. He will sustain you. He'll provide for you. Because He has a a loving compassion for you if you are in Him. Trust the Lord and He will care for you. He will care for your soul. He will care for your life. He will care for your future. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall not hunger. 
And he who believes in me will never thirst. The question is, do you trust him? Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust him with your future? Is he your only hope? He must be. And he's more than able. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the power and the provision. And Lord Jesus, through your hands, as you lifted up your eyes to heaven to behold the grace of the Father, through your capable hands, you fed the hungry. You fed the thousands and the multitudes, Lord. And it is by the Spirit that we can even understand how this miracle could even happen. That we understand truth, that we apply this to our own lives. And see that this is not just about feeding the hungry back then. This is about your unchanging, eternal character. Your righteousness and your sovereignty and your loving kindness. God, you are ever our provider and our protector. You go before us and you give us what we need, Lord. And Father, we confess to you that there are so many times we fear that we are not faithful to you. That we think that we're going to be the ones to solve the problem. That we're going to do it in our own strength. And we, we worry and we stress and we manifest anxiety and fear and bitterness and hopelessness. And Lord, as the chief of sinners in this room, I confess that that has been my bent more often than I care to admit. But Lord God, you are sufficient for all things. And you are able to care for us. And so we, as your church here, we bless your name. We praise you because you are the one who loves us. Even before we loved you, you loved us and sent your son to be the Savior for us. We thank you for your sufficiency, for your love, for your care and compassion. We praise you in Jesus' name.